on the evening of that first day, first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I don't know how many people feel like you'd be pretty glad if you saw the risen Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your house today together, all of us marked in some way by this event of you revealing yourself, the risen Savior to us in your own special way. Father, as we reflect on these words, would you give us clarity to our minds and give us conviction to our hearts and help us to see and understand what your spirit is doing here in this church and in our own lives together. Father, we want to be people of your word who live by your word. And so put us right now under your word. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. You may be seated or not. I mean, I have to stand the rest of this time, so and you could join me in that, I don't know, solidarity somewhere. Um, I've got a, a, a new puppy at my house. I mean, he's not really that new. He's like 10 months old now. We did what everyone else here did in the midst of 2020 in the pandemic. We decided to go all in on a doodle. We, we, we searched and scoured and figured out, you know, if we're going to be home right now, now's a good time to train a dog. And so um, I'd been training my daughter. She turns eight today. Um, I know. Yeah, she's not here. You don't have to applaud for her. <clears throat> but, but I've been training her since she was four to tell her mom, mom, don't you want a puppy? And finally the day came. We got a little puppy. Alfie. Sir Alphabet Scribbles is his full name, uh, named in honor of e-learning because our kids were learning how to scribble their alphabets. Or I don't know. That's how it worked. Um, so we picked up this dog, and I, and I, I had never had, I'd look, he's my first puppy. He's not really my puppy. It's a Freudian slip. He's my daughter's first puppy. And uh, we're learning all the things, right? How to make the dog sit, how to make the dog stay, how to make the dog roll over. We're really close to getting the dog to play dead, like really close. The dog has shown us how smart he is. I mean, we, we couple rounds with a treat and a couple commands, and he's got it. I mean, he's figured it out. He's also shown us how good he is at going to the vet because he's been there like every other week. You know what I mean? Like, it's just been puppy awesomeness at our house. And what I love about him is that um, he is just so ridiculously smart. I've got another dog in my house who, who is, um, she's 11, has never been smart. Kristen and I, it was 10 years ago that we got this dog. We got her when she um, was, was 18 months old. And get this, this is kind of ironic. Um, many of you know, and I think all of you know, that Kristen and I are moving to Kansas. And um, it's okay if you want to boo that, that's fine. But we're moving to Kansas. We just bought a house in Kansas, which is a big answer to prayer. And it's in the same town, Overland Park, as where we got our first dog. Our dog's going back to her hometown. Toto is literally going back to Kansas. 
We just hope she makes it. Otherwise, we could be like Joseph bringing back the bones, you know? <laughs> this dog, this dog, um, she was... Um, she was 18 months old. Her life was well established before we got her. She never fetched a ball. She never learned how to sit. She was never cool. And this old dog has proven well the, the axiom, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And I think this isn't just true of dogs. I think this is true of people, hence the saying. It seems to be true of me. I mean, I still tie my shoes the same way that I did as a little infant, and that's why I have no laces today. And I still, um, you know, prefer coffee the same way as I did when I first started drinking. I still dive into a swimming pool with the same terrible form that I dive into. I still prefer my hot dogs all the same way as I did a long time. Like, more than preferences, these are patterns to my life. They're default modes in my life that often get in the way of my progress. In one sense, this morning, what I want to talk about is, is about breaking bad habits, but also, more than that, we want to talk about breaking traditions, I want to talk about breaking traditions. Because you and I can become old dogs, but churches can become old dogs too. One of the dangers of following Jesus together in any sort of organized way is, is that organizations can sometimes become enshrined in their own form of doing things, that it becomes its own type of tradition. And over the past six years, we've had our patterns and our customs and our traditions here, but we've tried hard not to let the way that we worship Jesus become ritualistic and just traditional. Not that tradition is bad. Christians are linked to the past. Inherently, we are people of tradition. But what happens when tradition gets in the way of mission? As I think about the transition that's about to happen here at the campus, the transition that's about to happen in my own family, and my own life, one of the opportunities that lies before all of us is to reflect upon what's become of the traditions that we've established. Who are we and who are we called to be? It was Mark Twain who once wrote, there is less to, when there is less to justify a tradition, it's harder to get rid of it. And in one sense, now is a moment of significance where God has a chance to catch our attention once more as we say thank you to what's been and we commit ourselves to what will be. And if we don't look at our default modes, we are prone to default into something that doesn't honor Jesus. This is what happened to the disciples in the passage that we just read together. After they raced to find the tomb empty, they went back home. John 20 verse 10 tells us they went back to where they were staying. I don't think John put that detail in there haphazardly. I don't think he wanted for us to miss that. It wasn't so much the destination that they went to, but the way in which they did it. They went back to what they knew. Other gospels talk about Jesus finding the disciples back fishing. There is this regression that can often happen, regression towards the mean of our life. This, this thing that just goes back to the status quo, the habits of our hearts, that if they're not founded in the reality of who Jesus is today, we lose the power of everything he's trying to do. They go back, back to what they knew, back to a state of confusion, back even to their old enemies. I want to just ju ju jump into this text together. John 20, verse 19. This is where I am today. John 20, verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day, again, the first 
day of the week. Last time we talked about this two weeks ago, we were a couple of verses earlier, and I shared with you that John is a story about new beginnings. It's a re-preaching of Genesis and how Jesus comes and he puts back into the world all that was broken. He puts it to right, but he does so in this recreative way that mirrors the way that God first created the world. And John wants us to be very astute and pay attention to the fact that this is a almost one-for-one comparison. That's why he says, that evening, the evening of what? The, the evening where uh, the day that earlier that morning before it was dark, Mary went to the tomb and found that Jesus wasn't there. That day, the same day, Easter evening, for you uh, and me, we're usually passed out after uh, Ham and the masters on Easter. But what were the disciples doing the first Easter? The first day of the week, the doors being, what, what were they? Everybody say it together. Locked where the disciples were. For fear of the Jews. Again, John tells us first day of the week. It's new creation. There's evening and morning the first day. That's Genesis 1-5. Whenever I think of morning and evening and the way that the Bible uses, I think of the faithfulness of God. His mercies, which are new every morning, turn into evening blessings. But the disciples on this day are not experiencing any sort of evening blessing, does it seem? Peter and John, they raced back to where they were staying. They locked their doors. And this doesn't at all sound to me like the heaven that we were promised when Jesus rose again. It sounds a lot like, it sounds like hell. Doors locked, people in hiding. Hiding from who? Well, well Friday, the the disciples were hiding from the crowd and they were hiding from the Romans because they didn't want to be themselves facing the similar fate that Jesus was faced at the fate of the Romans. But after the body of Jesus was missing, no longer were the disciples afraid of the Romans. Actually, the disciples had a leg up over the Romans because the Romans were the one guarding the body of their, follow, of their, of their leader, and, and they didn't know where his body was either. And so the Romans were actually a little bit scared of the disciples in this moment. But it's the Jews. It's actually their own people. It's the religious leaders who the disciples have locked the door on, trying to hide from. They were terrified from them. The disciples did not see themselves on the offense, but on the defense. They were afraid that the Jewish leaders were going to come and accuse them of stealing the body that they had no idea where it was, except that Mary had said she'd seen Jesus, claimed that he was alive, and her story kind of sounded like it was in keeping with the rest of what they do about Jesus' life. And we would think that upon the resurrection of Jesus, at the pronouncement of the gospel, the, the good news that Jesus has claimed victory over sin and death, that the disciples would have been emboldened and empowered, but instead of living a life of new powers, the disciples defaulted to living the same old life of fear. And it's into this moment, with the disciples huddled around, where Jesus, John doesn't tell us how he does it, but he came and stood among them. Jesus found the trap door into the room. He cut himself through the ceiling. I don't know. Maybe he disapparated like Harry and Hermione. But, but however he did it, he came and he stood in their midst this day. In the midst of their deepest fear, Jesus found them. 
which is an incredible reality for you and for me to think about that the resurrected Jesus has his ways of getting into the places where we are. Like there's nothing in your life, there's nothing in your heart that you can do to lock him out. When he wants to find you, he's going to find you. (laughs) So he walks in to this space and he says to them, he says, peace, peace, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus comes to his disciples, and he finds them not living in his victory. He finds them living as if he'd been defeated. Jesus arrives, and he says to them, peace, and he proves who he is, and they're glad. Then he says they're overjoyed when they saw them. The new era of Jesus was about to reorient the disciples' perspective and their traditions and their default modes. When Jesus said to them, peace be with you, I think he was speaking into the deepest fears of their heart, their, their, their fear for their lives. This is, in essence, for Jesus to say, I'm here for peace, not a fight. You're safe. Have no fear. And this is what I want to present to us together, is that the resurrection of Jesus, it changes our realities. It changes what our default settings in our lives should be. You and I all have been accustomed to growing up in some sense of fear. And, and it's into this space that the resurrected Jesus comes and he says, no, no, I've come not to give you fear, but I've come to give you peace. And so today, here's our reality is, is we live in peace, not fear, because of the gospel. We live in peace, not fear. A simple walk through Christmas time tells us how much Jesus came for peace, right? Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. The second week of Advent is a week of peace that we celebrate the coming of God's peace to this world. Jesus is here for our peace, and I find it compelling that after his victory over death, his followers still needed his peace. And how did his peace come? It was his presence. The presence of Jesus is, always, will be our peace. The presence of knowing that God is near in a hard time. The presence of of knowing God's here with you in the midst of your walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The the presence of knowing that God is here on those mountaintop experiences. God's presence is always our peace. Think about the disciples who finally realized that the person standing around them with the nail holes in his hands and the side that was pierced was God was Jesus, was alive. What started as a PR nightmare for the disciples and fear for their lives, in one moment of Jesus' arrival became, must have become, a moment of victory and a moment of courage. I mean, if the big problem is that the Jews don't know where Jesus' body is and they're coming after the disciples for stealing it and causing all this problem, here is the guy who you're looking for. And yes, we would love for you, all of you, to see him right now. This guy. Remember this guy that you killed? Remember this guy that you pierced with a a sword? Remember this guy that you nailed to two beams of wood? Remember this guy? 
hey, Jesus, would you say some words? And all of a sudden, your case is made, right? The presence of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, fear has no power over us because he is with us. That, that withness, that with usness in life is what allows you and me to face uncertainty of tomorrow and to say, I will not fear for God is with me. John is not only echoing the words of Genesis, but he's also showing us how Jesus is the new Exodus. Not, he's bringing people out of the death of, to life by the blood of the Lamb. This is the moment of movement that brings me, me to the mind of, of Exodus 33. When, when Moses says to God, he says, he, he says you, you're telling me to bring up these people, but, but you've not told me whom you're going to send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. So therefore, if I found favor in your sight, this is Moses talking to God. Please show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And then look at how God, I want to show you, look at what God says in response to Moses bringing the people out. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known if I have found favor in your sight and I in your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people in the face of the earth? What is it that creates a distinction among us from every other organized club, organized group on Facebook, organized community here in this. What is it about a church that creates distinction here in this community? You know what it is? We believe we have the presence of God marking us. Amen? I don't know what you're doing on a Sunday if you're coming here not trying to meet with the present God in your life. I, mean, I believe it so deeply that at every turn, God is active and working, and, and, and if he's not, I'd rather not go. If God's not in, I'd rather not do that. If God's not leading this thing, I don't want to sign my name on the bottom. If God's not in it, we don't want to go, but we know God's with us. Brother, sister, you've got a decision you're facing, some of you. You've got an uncertain future in your family. You've got a business deal you're not entirely sure about. You've got a decision of where to go to college in a year. You, you don't know what the future looks like, and yet here's the confidence that we have because of the gospel. Your God knows and is with you. Amen. You don't need to be afraid. He's present. I wonder if you felt the crushing anxiety about your family, about your job, or your future. The joy of the gospel is watching God walk that out with him. Psalm 145 tells us he's near to those who cry to him. If you have a fear, would you cry to him? I want to double down on this. Look, look again at verse 21. Jesus says, peace be with you. Now, that's not a typo. He says it to them twice. Why? Because they probably needed an extra dose of peace in this moment. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then check this out. As the Father has sent me, even so I am, everybody say these two words together with me, sending you. Peace. And then as I've been sent, I'm sending you. 
The default mode for the disciples was fear, but more than that, the default mode for the disciples was hiding and disengaging from the world. They were afraid of the fight, afraid for their lives. They were afraid they were overcome. So what did they do? They shut themselves in. They locked the door from the inside. Jesus, though, says to his new creation life and to those who are following him, peace to you and don't stay shut in. I'm going to send you out. And so you and I, to get one of our default modes, we got to understand this about what God is doing. He's not asking us to stay in. He's not quarantining his church. He's sending us out. The default posture of a disciple has to be one who's willing to take some steps. Outside the door, outside into the world, outside of a place where maybe they don't think like you, maybe they don't look like you, maybe they don't believe like you. And that's how you know you're going where Jesus wants you. One of my big fears for the church, and, and I don't, I'm not a prognosticator, I'm not Warren Buffett of the church, I don't know anything except for just one of my fears for the church. One of my, I guess maybe I should say this way, one of my fears for myself, my own heart, is that I would gravitate back to the mirror every time I have a choice. That was just, this is a Matt Chandler saying, he kind of said this, like people that look like you and talk like you and act like you and who are comfortable like you that I would just live my life in a bubble, that the church would just live their life in a bubble and hide out from the world, from the people that God's actually put us out to be salt and light to, to actually encounter, to rub shoulders with, to actually bump into. One of my fears is that I would spend my days as a pastor, which means professionally, I kind of am around a lot of people who are already on my team. That I would do so with people who worship God the same way as me in the same manner, and they see the world the same way. and There would be absolutely zero friction in my life, be absolutely zero opportunity for me to actually be sent out. What's interesting about this word, word, word sent, Jesus uses it twice. It's the same word in different, different, different ways. Can you go back to that verse, uh, Tim? Thanks. Uh, he said to them, peace be with you, as the Father has sent, that's the word apostle. As the Father has apostled me, even so, I am sending, I am apostolizing you. This is the same thing that Jesus did with Mary at the garden. It's the same word, apostle. That I'm taking you and I'm sending you as a messenger to tell the world that I am alive. Who, who needs to hear that word the most? Maybe we do, for sure. But wouldn't it be the people who are actually dead, spiritually? The ones who could benefit the most from his life. One of my fears, brothers and sisters, is that we have been conditioned in our default mode to be this. When Jesus came, and one of the first things he did was he unlocked the door, and he did this. It's a convicting thought for me. How does the gospel move from me to my neighbors if I never bump into them and serve them? How does the gospel move from me to my family if I never... You know, if I only leave it hidden in my heart and I, un- I never unpack my faith in a public way, if I just privatize my faith, how does that faith move from myself to my kids to their kids to their kids? How does the gospel move through me if I just privatize it? I think there's a lot of fear today about evangelism in the world, the word itself. Most Gen Z think that it's wrong to assert your beliefs upon anyone else. 
But Jesus did not apostolize us to assert his victory to others. And I've, I've spent six years here trying to just get this to be so clear. And I want to say it one more time for the fear that maybe I haven't been clear. Jesus never asked us to twist people's arm into the kingdom. He simply has given us great news that we hold out as an invitation that's how the gospel always comes. It's like a seed that might bear fruit if you just let it germinate. It's like a message that's coming to you from news from a faraway land that your, your, your king has won and is victorious. It is an invitation. It's never an invasion. God never takes us and tells us to go out and beat people over the heads. Woe to Christians who are out in the media trying to beat the nation over their head with the Bible. He's given us news to share as an invitation. Why? Because he's invited us into that. Did God twist your arm? No. He just simply showed you how good he is compared to everything else in the world. Amen. I remember the day that Jesus locked, you know, showed up in my locked room. Got a hold of my heart. Show me that he, his living life was better than the life I was living towards death. And it changed everything for me. And I made a decision to step. He never had to twist my arm at all. And so as we think about being sent out as opposed to shut in, I want to help us understand that we just go and we open our hands and say, this is what God does. Would you like to join him too? Would you like to follow him? Would you like to live your life for him? Last Sunday, let me just kind of quickly uh, share how this looks in my own life. Last Sunday, I had the privilege of being out in Kansas and preaching um, where I'll be preaching for a lot coming up. And I was in the airport in Kansas, and I, I've grown up my whole life. I actually was born a mile from O'Hare Airport, and so I know airports. Kansas does not have an airport. They've got like a little like, it's a trailer is what it is. <laughs> And it's under construction. They're building a brand new thing. It's going to be really cool in a couple of years so that when you guys fly out to come stay at our house, you'll have a place to come. But, uh, but I'm in the airport, right? And I, you may not know this about me, but I don't really, it's not a choice. It's just a thing that happens to me. I don't really ever eat on Sundays. This is just my life. I, I, I get into this mode of wanting to be before you. And, and so I often am preaching on an empty stomach. That's why I drink so much coffee. It's also why I'm energized and I speak a mile a minute. Sorry, Daniel. It's all this vicious cycle. And so last Sunday, I, it, it was, a, I mean, up there at 7, preach, coffee, 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 lunch. I went and saw the house that my wife contractually obligated us to, and it's great. It's actually really nice. And had, had to get the rental car back to the airport, and so had, just flying around, just flying around the whole day coffee. And I got to the airport, and there's one restaurant, one 70 different gates, one restaurant. It's a Budweiser Cafe. <laughs> Apparently, that's a Kansas, Missouri thing. Um, and, and, uh, and I think, well, food is important right now. Let's go. And, and, and there was like seven tables inside of this cafe. And so um, there's a wait to actually get in. And I look at my, I actually made from the rental car to the gate pretty good time. I had about an hour, and so I decided I could just stand in line and just look at my phone like everybody else, just in line waiting for some food. And the line's slowly moving, and it's, we're all kind of grumbling, and, and this guy is right in front of me, and he sees a table for, for four open up, and he goes, he turns around, he goes, hey, 
I don't know if you're in a hurry or not, but there's a table for four opening, which means they're only going to seat two people there. Would, would you want to sit there and that way you can get served quicker? And I was like, dude, this is awkward. <laughs> sure. And so um, there's something about it that made me feel like I just needed, I needed to take that step. I just needed to just engage with somebody on this trip. I needed to talk to somebody. And so we sit down and we both take our masks off and um, I asked him, hey, where are you from? He goes, I'm from Seattle. Oh, cool. What, what are you doing? Well, Kansas has really good gun ranges. <laughs> from Indiana? What? Uh, he says, I'm dating a girl from Kansas City, and I'm flying back. We both work at a gun store. I was a Marine. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> what that meant was I was paying for the bill, because how do you, I mean, you got to honor that. And so um, he sits down. He found out I was paying. He doubled his drink size, so that was great. <laughs> Our food comes, and he, you know, we're not sure how much to actually engage. Total strangers in an airport. And um, he asked me, he says, well, what do you do? And I've learned just not to be uncomfortable with this question anymore because it's just like this is, this is a layup these days. I said, well, I'm a pastor. I, I, I spend my days and I'm, I'm, I preach the Bible because I think it's the only way that we can really make sense of the world that we live in. It's kind of like my standard line that I use. And he looked at me and he said, what denomination? I said, well, we're a non-denominational church. And he goes, no way, I used to be that. <laughs> he goes, I used to be that. And this guy is talking so loud in, the, in this. It was just so uncomfortable. But he goes, I used to be that until I joined the Marines. And something happened in my heart, and I felt myself go away from God. And lately, I've been wondering who I could talk to to find my way back to him. Hold on. Hold on. So I led him right there to get on his... No. I invited him as he's dating this girl in Kansas to come to our church. But, but I, did, I, I did want to say this. That would not have happened had I not been willing to go into a place called Budweiser Cafe. You know what I mean? Like, that's the point I want to drive home is like, like we got to get out. We got to be willing to go to places where real people have real questions about God. Not hiding, shut in, protecting ourselves, but the spirit of God is present in us, in this community, in your life, that as he sends you out, would you be willing to speak up for him? That's what God wants from us. That's what the resurrected Jesus does in us. More of that here is what I'm asking for. And then finally this. We, we, so we live in peace, not fear, because God's present with us. We live as sent out, not shut in, because he's purposed us to go. But look at this. The last thing. This is, this is wild and kind of crazy, and I'm almost out of time. Thank the Lord I timed it this way, because this is tricky. When he had said this, he breathed on them which is totally not cool in 2020 and 2021. <laughs> when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, that enough is creepy. If you ever tried to like breathe on somebody, it's a weird thing. If you ever had somebody breathe on you, I don't think I've ever had anybody breathe on me. Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says this thing. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold the forgiveness from any, 
it is withheld. Following this, Thomas is going to tell Jesus he'll never believe, but I want to stop on this right here because these are difficult words. So technically, this moment actually happens where the receiving of the Holy Spirit actually comes in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, where, where Jesus sends his Spirit at Pentecost, 50 days after he rose from the dead. So what is Jesus doing here? I've got a lot of theories because theologians have a lot of theories, but, but I think there's something really key to this that no matter how we decide to answer these questions, it's going gonna, it's gonna to force us into a new pattern of life in the resurrection of Jesus. It's simply, it's simply this, is that in the new creation, in the new beginning, I think that moment when God breathed his breath into Adam's lungs, Jesus is recreating that moment right here, saying, you will live, therefore, not just by the breath into your lungs, but, but by the spirit that I give you. In, in Genesis, it's, it's the word ruach, and, and, and in John, it's the word pneuma, pneuma. It's, they both have connotations for wind, spirit, or breath. When, when we die, we give up our breath. We, we, technically, we give it back to God. It, it goes out from us, and we give it back to him. Jesus, as he's breathing into us, notice what's happening. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Our, our consistent approach to the Bible and even our consistent approach to the book of John is going to tell us that the Holy Spirit is the power, the, the wind, the, the breath, the life of God. It is the Holy Spirit that, that resurrected Jesus from the, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us power. It's the Holy Spirit that animates dead bones and brings them back to life. It's the Holy Spirit that is present among us. It's the Holy Spirit who, who is the one who is the triune, part of the triune Godhead who we believe is somehow mystically but presently active and working right here, right now. It is the Spirit. Jesus breathes into his disciples and he breathes in his spirit. Why does he breathe his spirit? Because his spirit is his power. What do fearful, hiding people need? They need some power. They need power from on high. And this is exactly what Jesus says. He, he says, as my father has sent me, so I am sending you. How did the father send Jesus? He sent him humbly, meekly, lowly, but with power. He sends him to be gentle, but strong. He sends him to be, to, be, to, be, to be lowly, but exalted. How? In his power. And so Jesus is sharing with us your, your Holy Spirit is the power by which you will live this new life. And then, and then here's the extension of this. He says then, and that's one thing, but the other thing is, is this, is if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from many, it is withheld. But let me ask you a question. Who forgives sins? This is not a trick question. God. It's a divine mandate. And if you want to get nerdy here, the, the words are, a divine passive. If you do something, then God will be the one that carries that out. If you don't do this, then God will be the one that holds it back. But certainly Jesus was not expecting us to be the arbitrators and the judges of people's souls. That's completely consistent with the rest of what Jesus teaches in the New Testament. If it was up to us in this new day and age, we would kind of undo the clock and we say, Jesus, you don't even have to die. We forgive ourselves. 
It can't possibly be that we are in control of the fate of other people. I think how this all works together, and what I want to share with us is, is just simply this. As, as Jesus breathes his breath and says, receive the Spirit, and then extends his ministry, the ministry of dealing with sin, he's telling us that you have an active role in the way that people experience life and the way that people experience death. And the, the difference between those things is going to be how you take this life and how you show the world forgiveness. How you use your words to show the world that God forgives them will show them whether or not they are forgiven. And so we live not in a default mode where we've lived our whole lives in words of death. You're never anything. You'll never amount to anything. How could you? I'm so hurt. I'm so wounded. No, no. We don't live in words of death. We live today in the resurrection power in words of life. We, we have to change this default mode of who we are and the traditions that we've come up in and the traditions of how we've to, to, to stop spreading death over people and instead to share life with them, to, to give words of life, to, to share these words of life. What are the words of life that Jesus uses here? He says, the forgiveness of sins. Hey, has anybody offended you? Has anybody sinned against you? Yes is the answer. We've all been through that Chick-fil-A drive-thru line. <laughs> Christian chicken, whatever. So my, right? Have you been, like really, you've been, you've been sinned against. You, you've been And what we see is that the power that we have, that the, the Spirit empowers us to do, is to actually use our words to show that what we believe is real. To not deny with our actions what we proclaim with our message, but to actually put feet to words, feet to theology, your life to the fact that Jesus has forgiven you, and so by extension, you will forgive others. Brothers, sisters, our church depends on us forgiving. Your relationships, how you understand the forgiveness of Christ, how you understand God's relationship with you, it all is shown in the most violent, vile offense that can be met with forgiveness. I want to encourage you not to let the years go by on your bitterness. Not to let the years and the months and the days go by on your unforgiveness. Some of us are acting as if we control the outcomes of this verse and we're trying to passively, aggressively twist the knife on somebody else and the whole time Jesus is standing there saying, I'm sending you out, receive my spirit. How you use these words will show people how you've been affected by me. And so go, I'm apostolizing you. Live in peace, not fear. Live as one who is sent out, not shut in. Live as one who uses their words for life and not death. And if we can be a church 
if you and I can be Christians, if we can follow Jesus together down these three base default modes of the resurrected life, it's unbelievable what God will do with that. It's, it's un, unfathomable for me to think about what God could do with that. We have all these desires for our families to look a certain way and to, to be marked by the gospel, but it's our fear that actually keeps us from doing that. We hide ourselves in, we keep ourselves together, but, but God says, no, go out, be out. You're sent and forgive and you'll see the resurrection life like you've never seen before. Here, here's, my, here's my hope. Is that us being these forgiven people, the children of God that we are, we would remember how much Christ has forgiven you and me. And God would use that simple act of humility to help us change his world.